following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Uh, Let's let's begin. uh, Let's turn to God in prayer one more time as we look into Scripture. Father, we do just come uh, so thankful for your word and how it speaks to us, how it um, shows us both who we are, but even more importantly, who you are. And Lord, we know that um, we can only really receive your word and understand it by the working of your spirit. And so Lord, I ask that you would prod your spirit and open our hearts and minds and eyes to understand Uh, the message that you would have for us today and that you would be speaking to us. Uh, So we just commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, You know, in the... It's uh, been a a fascinating thing to me in the Gospels that on a number of occasions Jesus... Um, uh, people bring or come to Jesus for healing, and uh, whether they're crippled or they have a demon or some other problem, and Jesus responds by saying, "Your sins are forgiven." Now, do you ever wonder why Jesus does that? Uh, can you imagine going to the doctor with some kind of terrible fever, super high fever, aching body, and you're thinking you have dengue or, you know, malaria or something worse. And you go to the doctor, and they take your temperature, and they take your blood pressure, and they check you all out. And the doctor says to you, I just want you to know I forgive you. <laughs> right? How, how would that go? He's like, yeah, for, don't forgive me. Give me drugs. Right? Uh, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, 
And of course, for Jesus, it, it highlights a huge, a vastly different worldview for Jesus than how we tend to see things. Uh, we live with a scientific broken, a scientific worldview where we see uh, broken health, whether it's physical or emotional or psychological, as being caused ultimately by chemistry and biology. Uh, but uh, for Jesus, uh, he saw the brokenness, whether it's in our emotions or in our physical body or in our psyche somewhere, as ultimately having um, roots in the spiritual that uh, ultimately they are somehow connected or caused by sin. Uh, and, of course, not only personal sin, uh, uh, and, and it's more complicated. I want to oversimplify what Jesus did. And certainly Jesus believed there were other components, other things that could cause illness, not always just direct sin. Uh, but for Jesus, these things, these things are connected. And if it was part of Jesus' worldview, I think it would probably be good for us to maybe shift our worldview a little bit to uh, see more of the effects that a broken soul and of uh, damaged spiritual inner being has on how we, uh, on our physical health, on our bodies, on our emotional well-being. And um, I don't want to go too much into this, but I, I really do believe uh, that there are much more spiritual roots to a lot of our problems than maybe we identify. Uh, and I can speak out of my own experience uh, dealing with depression. And for many years I battled with, uh, with, with depression. And um, I, I know, looking back, that one of the factors, and again, I'm not saying that this is the only factor. I know some people come after and say, yeah, but there's other things that cause depression. There's lots of things, lots of layers. It's a complicated thing. But I know for me, one of the things that was at the root of depression for me was self-condemnation, right? This idea that my conscience was not clear or clean. Um, I was very aware of my own sins and failures and my shortcomings. And I was constantly reminding myself of that, right? Uh, and, or, or being reminded of the things I had messed up and the things I had done wrong. And when I looked at myself, I felt, man, I'm just a mess up, right? I'm just always doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong things. Uh, and the, the result of that is, of course, when you, when you are constantly putting yourself down or feeling uh, that you are failing, you don't tend to feel very good about yourself as a person. Um, and, and that spins off into our emotional world. Uh, I did not feel I had much value, and I, I often felt depressed as, as my, inner, my inner voice was constantly condemning me. Um, Thankfully, I, I don't really deal with that kind of depression anymore, and God's helped me, uh, and I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but I share all that to say, uh, not only with depression, but maybe a lot of other problems could be traced back to, to issues in our conscience, right? When our conscience is self-condemning, uh, it would be interesting to know how it connects with things like anxiety disorders or addictions, or even physical disease and sickness. Right? We know that stress is related to a lot of those things. Uh, and I would argue that stress is not ultimately or only external, but it oftentimes is, it comes from internal things, how we think about ourselves. And, and how we think about ourselves often flavors the meaning we give to events and circumstances. Um, right? When we are self-condemning, 
When people say things to us, we interpret what they say or what they do through our grid of self-condemnation. Right? So somebody says something to us that's kind of neutral, but we take it as very negative. Right? We take it, that person hates me. They do something that, you know, uh, they didn't even know they did. But you take it as an absolute personal attack. They did that because they hate me. Right? Well, it's probably oftentimes, it may be true, maybe they do hate you. But oftentimes it's not, um, it's not at all reality. Right? It's our conscience that's causing us to see the world in a skewed way. And so we feel bad, we feel unloved, we feel disrespected, we feel slammed by the world around us. And it spins off in all kinds of problems. Um, and so uh, our conscience, in other words, our sense of, of being right or wrong, right? Our sense of uh, being condemned or being not condemned, um, can have huge impacts on all of our life and devastating effects on how we think about ourselves and how we treat others and how we deal with circumstances in our life. Um, so this passage in Hebrews, he talks about the work of Jesus in clearing our conscience. Right? So let's look at what he has to say about this. Uh, begins in verse 1, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Um, we'll get in a minute to how our conscience condemns us. But first he talks about uh, the shadow of the old. And in these verses, in these uh, actually it's from chapter 7 through chapter 10, the author's been writing and explaining why the Old Testament system of sacrifices should be done away with. Now, it's hard for us as non-Jewish people, especially non-Jewish people living during the temple era, to understand how radical this is. Do you understand what he's saying here? Okay, the Jews had been sacrificing animals in the temple and in the tabernacle for well over a thousand years. And they had been doing it because God handed this ordinance and these commands down to Moses. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and Christians start saying, well, that's all dumb and stupid. We should just do away with the temple, the high priest, the, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. Right? This, was, this was like unraveling everything at the very core of the religion of the Jews. And uh, it's a pretty radical claim. Right? How can he claim that uh, we should just abolish this whole sacrificial thing, which, by the way, the language he uses here and the, the way he's arguing this would, would uh, strongly indicate that they were still worshiping at the temple, that the temple had not been destroyed yet. And so this was still very much a part of the daily practice of the Israelites uh, when he wrote this. So he, he gives three reasons in these ten verses why, or actually the next couple verses, why... Um, it's right to, to do away with the sacrificial system, to delete it, uh, because it's obsolete. And the first thing he says in, this, in verse 1 is that the law was only a foreshadow of the real thing. It's only a foreshadow. The law about, and, he, and the law he's speaking here is specifically the law about sacrificing animals. The laws relating to temple or you know, temple worship. Um, that these were only a foreshadow of the real thing. 
they were not the, the true reality. Uh, the word foreshadows an interesting word that's hard to define, really. But it's the idea of giving a glimpse or a hint of something that is to come, not the real thing. So, like, when you go to the movie, before you actually watch the movie that you paid to watch, you have to sit through 30 minutes of stupid commercials and dumb tra- movie trailers, right? And uh, the point of the movie trailer is to do what? To give you a sneak peek of a movie that they're convinced you're going to want to go see after they've shown you the trailer. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, most of the trailers, I'm quite just disgusted. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not seeing that movie, right? Because it gives you a foreshadow of what's to come. And I'm thinking, if this is just the foreshadow, I don't want the real thing, right? Way too much stuff that I don't want to deal with in my life, right? But that's, that's the way it gives you a sneak peek. Sometimes it, uh, it gives you good things. You go, yeah, I want to see that, right? It's not the real movie. It doesn't really give you the plot or, you know, develop the characters, but it gives you a hint of what's to come. Well, that's the picture of the law. The law was, it was simply a foreshadow. It gave them a hint of the real thing, which was Jesus, the good things to come, the salvation that Jesus would bring. Um, so they are at best imperfect images. And the, the, the point of all this is that the law was never intended to solve the problem of sin. That's just what he's saying. He says the, the, the law should be dissolved. It should be undone. First of all, because it was never intended to be a final solution. It was only ever intended to be a foreshadow, a picture, a glimpse, a sneak preview of the real thing uh, that it pointed to. And to prepare the way for us to receive the real thing and to see it, know it when, when it comes. Second thing. Um, he goes on to say, it says, it's, it's, the, it's a shadow of the things that come. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Second problem with the law, uh, he argues, and he's, he's said this before, but he says it again here. The old system is proven inadequate by the very fact that the sacrifices need to be offered repeatedly. It says it's proof that they don't work because you have to keep offering them over and over and over again. He says, if it worked, you wouldn't have to do that. In fact, he says in verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? When they have ceased, when we have stopped, if the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And if it worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Um, So he says they, they they really have no effect uh, they're not ultimately effective or powerful if you have to keep doing them. Right? This is the case where practice does actually not make perfect. Right? There's this idea that if you want to learn a skill or do something well, you have to practice. You want to learn a musician, want to learn an instrument to be a good musician, what do you have to do? Practice, practice, practice. Bettina tells her kids over and over again, what? Practice. Right? Uh, you don't get skills by just doing it once. Right? Uh, and so the picture here of the Old Testament is not that they practiced these sacrifices over and over until they finally got it good enough that it worked. I know he says, no, that's not the way it is, right? The reality is that they had to do it over and over again just because they were ineffective. They were shadows. They were not the real thing. Uh, finally, the third reason he says is that um, the old system cannot make the worshipers perfect. Um, and, and the proof is that their conscience is not clear, clean, right? Made perfect. Um, what does perfect look like? And in this passage, what does he mean by perfect? 
perfect can have a lot of sense. It can be having moral perfection. But in this text, it really has the idea of being a process being completed, getting to the end. It's kind of like the artist who's making a, a beautiful painting and they adjust and tweak and they paint and they keep working on it, working on it until they really feel like it's finished. Right? And they step back and they say, that is perfect. That doesn't mean that it's, it's you know, the exact representation of the real. or It just means that it's, it's finished. It's completed. They have accomplished what they set out to do in that painting. Um, What's the idea here? He says, otherwise... Uh, would they not, the offerings have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, and he's speaking here probably most importantly of the Day of Atonement, which is done every year, uh, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Uh, perfection really has two ideas. One, it means to be perfect before God. Like if, if salvation does its perfect work so completely, it means that we stand before God uh, holy and blameless. Right? There is no one who can accuse us. And Paul describes this idea of perfection in Romans 8, 33 and 34. He says, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And so perfection means that we stand before God holy and blameless. When God looks at us, he does not see our sin. He does not see our mistakes or our failures. He, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And so he sees us holy and blameless before him without one charge of wrong or error. Okay, that's perfection. And most of us understand that. Uh, I hope. I hope we understand that that's what Jesus' blood does for us. It makes us right before God. And so when we stand before God, he doesn't say, oh, you know, what you said yesterday to your wife, you know, come on. You know, he, he, it's, it's clean. It's wiped clean. But secondly, and just as importantly, perfection means being perfect before myself. I don't know about you, but for me, this is a harder one. Like, I I can believe that God sees me without blame. I have a hard time believing that I can see myself without blame. Right? He says that true, if, if, if redemption, if this cleansing, sanctifying work of salvation works, if it does its perfect work, we will then no longer have any consciousness of sin. Okay, I won't, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you can say that you have no consciousness of sin? Well, well he says here, that's the work of perfect salvation. That's what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. And he, he implies here that that is what Jesus' death can accomplish. That through the cross, through the work of Jesus, you can experience and come to a place where you no longer have any consciousness of sin. Our sins are so forgiven and so far removed, not only from God's presence, but from my own heart and life, that I no longer have awareness of them in my conscience. Our conscience is, is our voice, that inner voice that tells me if I'm right or wrong, if I'm okay or not. Um, 
That doesn't mean here, he doesn't mean here that we will never remember the wrongs that we've done. Okay, obviously, uh, he's not causing us to, to, to have amnesia. Okay, that would be convenient, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the remembrance of those things in our conscience with the effect that they are accusing us. Okay, that's that self-condemnation where I've done wrong things and I think about those things and they condemn me. And I feel bad about myself because I go, man, I'm such an idiot and such a loser. That's my conscience condemning me. And he says that, um, for one, the blood of bulls and goats can't remove the, the memory of those things from our conscience. Right? He says the blood of bulls and goats cannot do that. It cannot so cleanse us from sin that our conscience is free and we no longer condemn ourselves. Um, but that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a, perf- a salvation that's so perfect that when we experience the forgiveness, the atoning, the cleansing, that there's no longer a sense of guilt or shame because I know that I am truly and completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. I am washed completely. I am no longer under the sentence of death uh, as a result of my sin. He said the blood of animals cannot do that. In fact, he says that uh, the, especially the Day of Atonement, when they would, they would atone for the sins of the nation by offering a bull. He said, not only did it not take away consciousness, but it actually reminded them of sin. Okay? It actually was a reminder. It's like, hey, you're sinners. Here's proof. We're going back. Another year gone by. Got a whole year's worth of sins we've got to atone for. And how did it remind them? Well, this is how it reminded them. This, the high priest would go and he would slaughter this bull at the, at the altar outside the tabernacle or the temple. He would collect this big vase of blood. He would sprinkle some of it against the altar. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat of God. And who went there with him? No one. Right? No one went in. And this, the congregation stood outside reminded of What? that they did not have access into the presence of God. And in fact, the fact that God didn't just wipe them out completely depended on uh, this atoning sacrifice. So every year, with every burnt offering, it was a reminder of their sin and the penalty that had to be paid over and over and over again. And the fact that they could not enter into God's presence. They were shut out by the veil that separated them. So, so those are kind of his three main arguments. And, and he summarizes it in verse 8. He says, when he said above, this is, he's quoting Jesus, who's actually quoting a psalm, or he's putting a, a psalm in the words of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, even though these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first... That is, the sacrificial system under Moses in order to establish the second. That is, salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then in verse 10, he says, And by that will, by that plan, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the word sanctified there is, is a word that implies this perfect salvation. 
Right? This perfect cleansing of conscience so that we no longer uh, are aware or feel the, the weight or shame of our sin. Uh, this is a, a quote from Psalm 40. Uh, and the writer of Hebrew kind of prophetically puts it into the mouth of Jesus. Now, we don't know if Jesus actually said these, but he's arguing that there are prophetic words about Jesus that, that he could speak, uh, that, that uh, he would replace the old system uh, by his sacrifice and by his blood. Um, and so complete, so, so perfect was his sacrifice that it was once for all. But it was enough. And in one time, Jesus could deal with all sins for all people for all time through his blood. Um, so we see uh, kind of Jesus does the, the three things that the law couldn't. Right? The law was a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. He's the real deal. Right? He's, not a, he's not a movie trailer. <laughs> he's the real movie. Right? Secondly, uh, he did not need to give his life repeatedly for sin like the blood of bulls, uh, of, blood of bulls and goats, right? He offered his, his life once for all. And thirdly, he makes us perfect by making us blameless before God and by silencing the condemning voice of our own conscience. So complete and all-encompassing is his sacrifice. And so, uh, so here's, here's kind of the application point for us. The life of a Christian, the life of faith, is to be one that is so impacted by the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus that there is no condemning voice within us of any kind. Right? When we sin, uh, there, there, is, there is a one-time remembering. And there should be a one-time remembering. When we're aware of sin, when we become aware that we have uh, dishonored God, we've disobeyed Him, we have failed... And what do we do with that sin? We go to that sin and we confess it and we repent that sin. We take it to the cross and we leave it there with Jesus. And it gets covered by his blood. And in that blood, it is washed away and cleansed. It is removed from us uh, in every way, right? So that it is vanished from our life. Kind of like the super duper uh, atomic ray gun in, in every great good cartoon with the super duper bad guy, right? They all have like super atomic ray guns. And what do super atomic ray guns do? Well, they vaporize everything, right? They don't just blow it up. They vaporize it. They shoot the ray gun and the whole building just shakes and poof, it's gone, right? Well, that's what Jesus' blood does in our, to sin in our life. It vaporizes it. It removes it completely. It's gone, vanished, uh, to the extent that we remember it no more. <clears throat> uh, and again, it doesn't mean that we can't call up recollections of things we've done wrong. Uh, but, but this is how it happens. When we think of our sin, what we're supposed to do is instead of feeling condemned by that sin, instead of remembering it as our own moral failure and disappointment and you know, wrongdoing, <clears throat> instead what we are to remember is God's grace. Right? What we see when we look at our sin is no longer that sin, but we see the cross. We see the life of Jesus' sacrifice for that sin, and we see that it's been removed and covered through His sacrifice. So that now what our conscience calls to us is not how worthless we are, how horrible we are. 
what a failure we are. But how amazing God's grace is that it has removed that sin from our record and from our life. Right? All of its consequences, all of its effects are cleansed from our heart and soul. Uh, we are so forgiven. Right, so this is to be the, 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 this is to be the life of the Christian. Every Christian should, should live this. They should experience this. And I really believe as a result, we should experience a lot less depression and anxiety and addictions and, and brokenness. Right? Uh, again, there, there can be other causes, so it's not, not to mean that you can't be a Christian and be depressed or have these things. But we should have a lot less of them. So the, the million-dollar question is this. Then why doesn't it work for me? Right? If you're honest with yourself, could you honestly say that there is no condemning voice in your conscience? Right? That you are that clear and, 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 and that, that, that there's no self-condemnation. Right? And if it's not working for you, you would say, well, I, I don't know that I can say that. I find myself still beating myself up. I find myself still feeling guilty or ashamed or burdened by my mistakes and my failures. And it really illustrates one of the great struggles of the Christian life, that we know things in our head that we really don't know in the depths of our soul and our heart. Right? If I were to ask you, does Jesus forgive your sins? We would say, yes, Jesus forgives my sin. But it's just in my head. It's information. It's not a truth that we really believe with all of our heart. And the reality is we are still living under the old system, not the new. Right? We're still living Old Testament. Okay, not meaning that we're actually going out killing lambs and bulls. Uh, instead, what we're doing is killing ourselves. Right? We're beating ourselves up. We're condemning ourselves. We're trying to pay that extra price for our sin because we're not convinced Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. And so we feel we need to add to it in some way by punishing ourselves. Uh, and I hear people say this. Well, I, I just don't deserve that. Right? Now, there's a truth in which we don't deserve it, right? We don't deserve anything. But that's not a declaration of a person who's under grace. Right? Often it is spoken to be very self-condemning. Right? We do remember our sin instead of remembering grace. And all too often our sins and our failures and our mistakes are not covered sufficiently by the blood of Christ. And they still leverage too much power and influence on our heart. So how do we change that? Well, I believe the, the, what we must do is we must spend a lot more of our time and energy and effort remembering grace and contemplating grace instead of contemplating our sin. And it is the plan of Satan to keep reminding you of sin and to keep hounding you with it because he loves you to be in that place. Because it opens up your heart and soul to all kinds of error. That is why when people say things to us and we misinterpret it and we, right, we think they hate us, we, we shouldn't be treated that way. Right? People shouldn't talk to us like that. Uh, and here's the, here's the good news. I think when our conscience is that clear, even if people do hate us and they do say bad things about us, we're okay with it. Right? It doesn't bother us because we know who we are before our Father in heaven. 
And it doesn't need to matter what people think or say. So how do we do this? How, how do we remember grace to the extent that it really changes us? It really gives us a consciousness that's that clear and clean where there is no condemning voice that drags us down. Um, well, he gives us some things that we can think about. And I think the problem is we don't spend enough time contemplating grace. We don't spend enough time meditating on and pondering and thinking about the deep truths of Jesus' salvation. So let me give us three things here that we could, uh, from this passage, that we could take home and meditate on. And again, it's not just that we know these things as truth in our head. We know these things. The problem is we haven't taken the energy and effort to get it from our, our brain into our heart and soul, where it really impacts how we see ourselves and how we live. First thing, first thing that will help us contemplate and remember grace um, he says in verse 5, Consequently, when, when Christ came into the world, he said, and, he, and again, he's quoting here Psalm 40, so he's putting Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. First thing we can be meditating on is that Jesus' sacrifice is effective because of the incarnation. Right? Jesus said, and the psalmist said, God's ultimate plan is not the blood of bulls and goats. But, uh, but God prepared for Jesus a body. It was God's purpose and plan that, that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, would leave heaven and come to earth and take on human flesh and blood, a body like yours and mine. Andrew Murray writes this. He said, Christ's body, Jesus' body was to him just what any man's is to him, the dwelling and organ of the soul, the channel for communion with the outer world, susceptible to impressions of pleasure and pain, and therefore one of the first occasions of temptation. Right? The, the, the heart of I mean, sin ultimately is a matter of your heart. Right? We sin because our hearts are messed up. But the place where we sin is not in our heart. Right? The place where we more, most, most often will sin is through our bodies. It's our mouth that speaks evil and, and, and lies and, and deceives. Right? It is our eyes that look with coveting and lust. It is our hands that do wrong things. It is our feet that take us to the wrong places. It's our body that desires and craves after things that are not in God's will. The only way sin could be dealt with was through a body. Right? Jesus had to come in a physical body like ours so that he could face all of those temptations and overcome them. Right? The power of Jesus' life is that he had a body, and with that body he faced every temptation and he defeated it. And that's the power of his life. The power of his sacrifice is that he lived a absolutely perfect and holy life, not just in heaven, but here on earth with a body just like ours, facing every temptation that you and I face, only without sin. Uh, here's uh, what I hope is kind of a funny picture. Right? Goats and bulls do not wrestle with sin. Right? The reason their blood cannot deal with sin is because they don't wrestle with sin. Now, it's fun. We make cartoons that kind of picture this, right? 
We make, chick- we make movies about a bunch of chickens plotting to rob a bank or at least a grain elevator, right? And it's funny. And what part of the reason it's funny is because it's ridiculous. Right? When was the last time you drove by a field and you saw a bunch of chickens with a chalkboard, you know, planning their, they're going to blow up the, the grain elevator, steal all the corn, right? They don't do that, right? They don't wrestle with temptation. Um... When was the last time you saw a cow in a long dress tired of all the bulls staring and drooling over her? (laughs) Those stupid lustful bulls. (laughs) It doesn't work that way, right? Um, But Jesus uh, faced those temptations. And it required a body who interacted with this real world and with the real choices of sin. And overcame. That's what gave his um, life power. Right? We, we do not spend enough time meditating on the, the crazy wonder of the Incarnation. The, the God prepared for Jesus a body to deal with sin. Second thing, uh, Jesus was devoted completely to doing God's will. Verse 7, then I said, and again, this is Jesus speaking. He's putting these words from the Psalms in Jesus' mouth. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as it is written me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Uh, The second thing we need to spend a lot of time meditating on is Jesus' commitment to do the Father's will. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was first and foremost a rejection of God's will. God's will and purpose is that you may eat of every tree in the garden except for one, the knowledge of the tree of the, no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? But what did Adam and Eve decide to do? To follow God's will or to do their own will? To follow their own agenda. Right? They followed their own agenda. And ever since then, mankind has has been going our own way, following our own will. And this is one of the great problems with moralism. Uh, I hear often people say, that person is such a good person. They never do anything wrong. Right? They're, they're an upstanding citizen. They're such a good person. But see, the problem is not if we are good or evil by some moral code. The question is, are we following God's will or our own? And a person who is moral for their own sake and by their own will and to their own end is living contrary to God's will. Jesus carried out God's will perfectly in every way. He surrendered completely to God's will. Even when it meant going to the cross. And we know Jesus wrestled with this. He said in the end though, not my will but yours be done. Jesus was committed in every way to, to doing the Father's will. And by that, he reversed the bad choice of Adam and Eve. By his commitment and devotion to God's will, um, he overcame our disobedience and our unwillingness to follow him. Again, the blood of a sheep can't do this because sheep just don't make choices like that, right? I mean, maybe they decide, like, this clump of grass looks better than that clump of grass, but, I mean, they don't really make Choices, right? They don't will things. Imagine a sheep herder who's kind of a ornery fellow, 
And uh, one night he's out drinking and partying, and he gets way too drunk, and he says things he regrets, and he does things that he regrets, and in the morning he wakes up and he feels guilty, right? He knows he's sinned, and he feels really bad, and he feels ashamed, and, uh, but he knows, well, he knows that he's worthy of, of eternal judgment and death. But he also knows that, that, that God's provided a way through a substitute. So he goes out to a sheep pen. And he knows that one of these sheep can be a substitute in his place. And he says to his sheep, hey, guys, I'm sorry, but last night I, I did really bad things. I was a really bad shepherd. I got drunk. I, I did all kinds of terrible things that I don't even remember. But my friends told me and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. And so I'm guilty of God's judgment and wrath. But God's made a way. One of you can die in my place. Who wants to volunteer? Bob, Fred, who's going to come on? One of you, if you could volunteer to die in my place, it's all good. Anybody? Because it's ridiculous because the sheep doesn't know, right? They, they have no will to choose, right? And, and, and if they could, they're probably thinking, yeah, you're a loser, shepherd. I'm not dying for you, right? You keep getting us lost and you forget to feed us, right? I'm not dying for you. Um. Jesus' death was a choice on his part, right? He willingly stepped forward and died in my place. He willed it. He chose to put himself in the Father's will, right? And he died in my place. You know, when we sin... Imagine if we did this. Every time we sin, we do something wrong, we, we, we feel this shame and it's guilt. And, and we said, I know I'm deserving of death and the judgment of hell. But I know that God has made a way that a substitute can die in my place. Who would die for me? And we cry out, who would die for me? And Jesus steps forward and he says, I will. In fact, I have. I have died for you. And I chose it. Because I wanted to do my Father's will. And that's why your sins are forgiven. That's why our conscience is clear. Third thing, last thing. Uh, Ultimately, we need to contemplate the truth and reality that we are sanctified by God's will as well. Not just Jesus choosing, but by the very will of God the Father himself. Again, verse 9, he, uh, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so he does away with the first, the law of sacrifices under Moses, in order to establish the second, the way of salvation through Jesus. In verse 10, he summarizes it by saying, And by that will, by that will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, we need to contemplate uh, daily, really, and much more deeply the truth that God's plan of salvation was to save you by sacrificing His own eternal Son. That was God's plan. That was His will from before the beginning of the ages. When He created us, when He created humankind, He gave us a free will, and he knew where it would end. 
He knew that it would lead to the cross. And it was by his grace that he was compelled to make that choice to send his son to save us. Right? He didn't choose that path because we deserved it. He didn't, he didn't choose to send Jesus because, um, because somehow he needed us. And it's like, oh, I'm about to lose them. And so I need to save them so I don't lose all human, humankind. Or because he was lonely. And so he made some desperate grab to save us. No. Uh, he did not feel pressured into saving us because we were trying so hard at being good. And he felt sorry for us. Right? Scripture makes it clear that we were his enemies. And yet... He sent His Son to die for us. Uh, he did not do it because we were doing so many good things that He felt He owed us something. He owed us nothing but judgment and wrath. But He chose His eternal plan from the ages. It was His will to save us by sending His eternal Son to take on a human flesh and blood and to die on a cross and shed his blood as a substitute in our place for our sin. It was out of his great love for us that he chose mercy and grace. As Ephesians 2, 1-5 through 5 puts it, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I really believe that the key to overcoming a lot of the junk in our life is to remember grace, to contemplate and meditate more significantly, to, to use all that mental energy that we were using to beat ourselves up and to condemn ourselves. And to instead see ourselves uh, as God sees us. Right? So how this should work is when, when we sin, when we fail, we, we confess. We confess sin. right? We remember it once. We bring it to God and we put it at, uh, in, in Jesus' hands. We put it on the cross. But we leave it there. And every time Satan brings up that mistake again, and he brings back those memories, and he tries to say, see what a loser you are. We respond by remembering grace. And we see that sin covered uh, by the blood of Jesus, by his body nailed to the cross for us, uh, who lived a perfect life in every way. We see uh, Jesus who surrendered himself to the Father's will, who chose to die for you and I in obedience to God the Father. We, we see God's plan in saving us out of his love and compassion by sending his Son to die for us. Right? And so perfect was his sacrifice right, that it, it wipes out sin from our life. 
Right? So it should never speak any condemnation in us again. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.